Um, this semester, as we're meeting together, we are exploring during this time um, some questions that Jesus asked. And um, these questions from Jesus. So why questions? Um, questions are an interestingly vulnerable thing. Because if you take a question seriously, you have no idea how it will impact you. If you let a, if you let a question really search you and you let it take you where it goes, um, you actually don't know where it'll end up. It, it actually is a, a, a vulnerable thing. And the Bible knows this. There's actually Jesus in the Gospels, in the, the, the books of the Bible that tell the story of his life. Um, there are about 290 questions that Jesus asks. And Christians believe that Jesus is God and um, God coming to earth, um, right, he could have just told everybody stuff. Just straight, here's how things are, here's the way things are supposed to be. But instead, he asks 290 questions, um, which shows us this, the value of questions and the value of questions that, that Jesus asks. And so tonight, we're going um, to take one question a week. We're not going to do all 290. And tonight, we are going to take up the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked this question of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And everyone who has heard of Jesus has an opinion of Jesus. And we live, a time, we live in a time culturally when it's okay to be curious about um, Jesus. It's okay to be culturally, like culturally it's okay to be spiritually curious. It's okay to, to, be, to say you're spiritual. It's okay to be a seeker. It's okay to have an opinion about Jesus. Um, and everyone who has seriously investigated the historical documents and the historical records agrees that Jesus was a historical person. I read this in the National Geographic magazine. Eric Myers, who's an archaeologist at Duke, he said this. He said, I don't know any mainstream scholar who doubts the historicity of Jesus. The details have been debated for centuries, but no one who is serious doubts that Jesus is a historical figure. And right now, the the estimate is that there are over 2 billion Christians in the world. Um, It's the most diverse religious group on the planet. Who, who believe that Jesus is supremely beautiful and he is in, intellectually compelling and he's worthy of worship. Either they are right or Jesus is the greatest literary hoax of history. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We've got lots of ideas of who Jesus is floating around. One of my favorites is, uh, is captured in the movie Talladega Nights. Um, at the dinner table scene, y'all know this, when Ricky Bobby's having dinner and he's praying and he says, dear Lord, baby Jesus, uh, we thank you for this bountiful harvest of Domino's KFC and the always delicious Taco Bell. And then his wife, Carly, interrupts him and says, hey, you know, Jesus did grow up. You don't have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting. But then Ricky responds, well, I like the Christmas Jesus the best. And I'm saying grace, and when you say grace, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want. Grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus. And then his buddy Cal, I love this part, he says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Um, and I like to think of Jesus with these giant eagle's wings, singing lead vocals to Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band, and I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Right, And then Ricky says, okay, and then he prays, and he says, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just so infant and so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Just want to thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Um, So who is Jesus? I mean, this is an important question, and uh, the most important question that we'll answer as humans. 
And the thing I love about this scene is that in all of its silliness, it actually captures a lot of the ways that we, um, we think about Jesus. We just take whatever we want and we just throw it at him. You know, Ricky Bobby gives us like this. Jesus is whoever you want him to be. He's a God who can be and do whatever you want. And I think a lot of us have tangled and mixed ideas of who Jesus is. Um, white Jesus, conservative political Jesus, social justice Jesus. Like there's these Jesuses in our imagination that, that aren't the real Jesus. And, and maybe some of you have had experiences with the church that are just so negative that you just don't have any interest in Jesus at all. Or perhaps what you have is some mixture of all of the above. Or maybe this is the first time in your life when you're taking seriously, you're for the first time seriously considering who Jesus is and what that means for you. I want to propose to you that the only way to actually know who Jesus is is to not to come to him on your terms, but to come to him on his terms. I mean, this is true of anyone that you want to get to know. Think about it. Like, think if you're in a class and there's a guy or girl that you want to get to know. How do you do it? Well, you wouldn't go home and then, like, dream up the possibilities of who they could be and hope that that maybe is who they actually are. Or maybe you do do this. But at least you know that you're not actually getting to know the person. You're just crafting some imaginative, like imaginary person in your mind. Um, you're creating an illusion of who they are. The only way to actually get to know that guy or the girl would be to meet them on their own terms. Meaning you'd spend time with them and be curious about them as to who they are and what makes them tick. And of course the same would be true of Jesus. Right? He is a historical person. In order to know the real Jesus, you have to come to him on his terms. Leaving your preconceptions at the door. So tonight we're going to look at this question that Jesus asks when he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Not just, um, as we do this, we're, we're going to look at not just who we think that Jesus is, but who he is actually. Not just our opinions about him, but who he really is. So our outline for tonight, it's on the back of your bulletin if you want to take notes, um, is the first, the significance of Jesus. So who is Jesus? And the second point, the consequence of Jesus. Or what happens when you understand who he is? What happens when you believe in him? I'm going to read for us Mark 8, 27 through 33. This is printed on the back of your bulletin, and it's up here. Uh, this is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and it is given to us in love. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. So first, the significance of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And I understand that if we're going to investigate who Jesus is, we have to begin with an agreed understanding of what sort of document the Bible is. What sort of document it is that we're reading about Jesus C.S. Lewis, who um, many of you know who he was, in addition to being a children's book author, he was a medieval literature professor at both Oxford and Cambridge. And he wrote the textbook on 16th century English literature, which was called English Literature in the 16th Century. 
It's the textbook. Um, and he wrote it by reading every single book written in the 16th century in English. Like he read every single one. So he knows a little bit about English literature. And this is what he says about the Gospels, the four books of the Bible that are about Jesus' life. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, visions, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, meaning this is eyewitness reports, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that no one was writing in this style in the first century as a fiction. Like that didn't exist yet. So either this stuff really is eyewitness accounts or it was thousands of years ahead of its time and style and genre. And what we just read from Mark's gospel is widely agreed upon, like C.S. Lewis is saying, as a eyewitness report. So just to set our context of this conversation, I just want to tell you a little bit what's been going on in Mark's gospel up to this point. So Jesus has been teaching people and healing people and, he- and feeding large crowds of men and women and children with just a few loaves of bread and a handful of fish. And then they come to this town called Bethsaida and Jesus heals a blind man. And at the start of our passage, we're told that Jesus takes his disciples out of the way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi which means that he had them walk 25 miles to the north of where they were to have this conversation. And where they are in Caesarea Philippi is important. We're going to come back to that. And here, outside of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give the answers of what they've heard from others. And then Jesus turns the questions on them. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Humans on our own, we can't figure out who Jesus is. God must reveal this to us. So who is Jesus? Well, just in this passage, we're given a few things to consider. Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus responds by saying that he must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And so I just want to walk through these two things together. That Jesus is the Christ and that he must suffer. So first, the Christ. What does this mean? Christ is a Greek word um, that comes, that means Messiah, uh, anointed one. It comes from this Hebrew word meaning Messiah. And the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, was the king, the promised king of Israel. And this word in the Old Testament refers to this great hope that God's people had, this great promise that God made that one day there would be a king who would sit on the throne of David forever. God would send someone, a great someone, to rescue and to deliver Israel as their king. And kingship is is sort of a foreign concept for us. Um, I mean, the idea of having somebody rule over us. As Americans, part of our national story is that if somebody rules over us, it's necessarily tyrannical, right? And I'm from Virginia, and I love our state flag. And our state flag, if you're unfamiliar with the state flag of Virginia, which you shouldn't be, you're in college. But just in case you don't know what it is, um, it is a woman who is the personification of the Roman virtue virtus, which is similar to um, our virtue courage. And she is standing with a spear in the dead king and his crowns laying on the, fr- on the ground. And underneath it, it says, seek semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. And this, um, this is in our imagination. Like this idea of what kings are is deeply embedded in us, right? Kings are bad because they're always tyrants. 
And even the language we use to describe good Americans is, has this embedded in it, right? Because we talk about someone being a self-made man or we used to talk about uh, rugged individualism, someone pulling themselves up by their, their, bootstrap, their bootstraps. Like we've dethroned the king and we've enthroned the self. So kings and kingdoms are, are unfamiliar, they're foreign to us, but what they offer us, what they promise to us is very familiar because a king and a kingdom promises two things, at least two things, protection and affirmation. So protection, right? If the enemy is coming, you can get behind the walls of the kingdom and you can be protected. Protection and affirmation. We, we long for the approval of somebody above us, whether it be a good job from your professor or boss or eye contact and a smile from your favorite musician during a concert or the I'm proud of you that you long to hear from your dad that you've never heard. Right? We all long for the approval and affirmation of someone above us. And this longing for protection and approval reveals that we were designed for a king. Christians believe, um, Christianity claims, the, Bible, the, the story that the Bible tells is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all things. And at the pinnacle of creation, he made humans in his image and he placed them in a garden. And this is what we're told in the first two chapters of the Bible. And if you were an ancient Near Easterner and you heard this account of creation from Genesis 1 and 2, you would immediately imagine God as a king. Because in the ancient Near East, the only people who had the wealth and the power to plant gardens were kings. And the only people who were making things in their own image were kings. As an ancient Near Eastern king established his kingdom, he would set up statues around his kingdom, images of himself around his kingdom, declaring to all who happened to pass by who the king was. And so God made humans in his image. He placed them in the earth. He blessed them. He gave them the commission to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over it as human kings and human queens whose authority was derivative and who received their protection and their affirmation from the true king, from God himself. But as the story goes, our first parents, rather than living as created kings, receiving authority and protection and affirmation from God, our first parents believed the lie of the serpent who told them that God is not to be trusted because God does not love you. And so believing that lie, they sinned against God. And rather than trusting God because he loves them, they believe this double lie of the serpent. God is not to be trusted because he does not love me. And so they ate from the tree that he commanded them not to eat. And in their hearts, dethroning the true king and enthroning themselves and his serpent, themselves and the serpent in, in his place. And their sin is our sin. And our sin is cosmic treason because we are so quick. All of us are so quick to believe that same lie. That lie that God is not to be trusted because he does not love me. And so rather than receiving the protection and affirmation from God alone, we will go anywhere else that promise us a deal that sounds sweet enough. Rejecting God as our king and enthroning his enemy in, in his place. But the story doesn't end there. Where any rightful king could execute traitors on the grounds of treason, our God, who in fact does love us and who we can trust with all of our being, Instead of executing Adam and Eve as traitors, he makes a promise to them that he will provide a king for them who will save them from sin and death and give them the ultimate protection and affirmation they long for. And so the Old Testament traces this story 
God always calling his people back to himself, revealing himself as their true king, unveiling the riches of his promises to them. And while God continues to promise to give his people a king, the king they need, the people continue to demand the king they want, enthroning anything but God again and again. And here on the walk to Caesarea Philippi, Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the promised king, the one that we have been waiting for. The one that the whole Old Testament points to as coming to be the king who will rule over us in love. You are the Christ. And he's right. And it matters that Jesus asks this question and Peter answers it in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. Because this city was a major Hellenistic, a major Greek city built north of Jerusalem to honor Caesar Augustus. And the city was filled with shrines to false gods and false kings filled with shrines and statues to idols and anything that people could dream up to worship, there was a statue for it. False gods. And there, in the midst of this, of all these created kings, Jesus' true identity is revealed, that he is the true king, the Christ. And to Peter's confession, Jesus adds that as the true king, he must suffer, he must be rejected, and must die, and that he will rise again. And it's interesting that Jesus says that he must suffer, not that he might suffer or he will suffer, but that his suffering, his rejection, his death was essential to his mission as the Christ. Like this is essential to his identity. One theologian says this, he says that the suffering, rejection, and death of Jesus is how Jesus shows himself to be God. For he is God in that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected to be made low and small without being driven to an inferiority complex. Whoever understands this suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It's there in the suffering of the cross, not in heavenly splendor and glory, that we see the heart of God. Mark is telling us that Jesus' title of king, him being the Christ, must come with a cross. And then Jesus says that he must be rejected specifically by one group of people the religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. He says that these people must reject him in order for his mission to be fulfilled. And y'all, this is deeply ironic, that the suffering and death of the Christ will not come, as we expect, at the hands of godless and wicked people. It's not humanity at its worst that will crucify Jesus Christ, but humanity at its best. The death of Jesus was not a momentary lapse or aberration of human, history, of human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who justify their actions by the highest standard of law and morality. Jesus was not lynched by an enraged mob. He wasn't beaten to death in a criminal act. He was arrested with official warrants. He was tried and executed by both the Jewish and the Roman courts. This is because Jesus came to earth to die to accomplish something. He was rejected so that you might be embraced by God. He, Jesus, who was perfect and without sin, was declared guilty, deserving death. So that by faith, you who are guilty might receive the verdict, not guilty, and receive life. Because through the power of his resurrection, Jesus can give you life. This is why in verse 30, Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anyone, like to keep this thing a secret, because the title of the Christ without the context of the cross would be worthless. So what then is, um, what happens when you understand who he is? 
Like, what happens when you believe this? What is the consequence of Jesus? What is the consequence of Jesus? If this is who Jesus really is, the Christ with a cross, what does that say about who I am? Um, One of the great theologians of Europe once said that the knowledge of God and knowledge of self are intertwined. Without knowledge of self, we can have no real knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, we cannot have any real knowledge of self. That these two are deeply connected. So let's start with the personal question, the self question. How do you answer the question, who am I? How do you think of yourself? Um, What is the rubric that you use to judge yourself? Where do you look to find out who you are? How do you make sense of who you are? What's the metric that you use to measure yourself? Well, if Jesus is who he says he is, then that has serious consequences for who I am. If Jesus is the Christ, that means that I am someone in need of a king to rescue and protect me. If Jesus had to suffer and be rejected and die, that means that my sin is that bad that it deserves a death like that. If Jesus is the Christ, then you are someone who needs a king to rescue and protect you. If Jesus had to suffer and be rejected and die, that means that your sin is that bad and it deserves a death like that. And here's the thing. When Jesus gives himself to you like this, when he shows you himself as the Christ who must suffer, who must be rejected and die and be raised, he is staring straight into that horrible double lie of the serpent, that lie that tells you that God cannot be trusted because God does not love you. And Jesus is saying, look at the love of my father. You can trust him because he has given me to you so that you might have life in and through me. So then what happens? What happens when you answer his question and you agree with him for who he is? What is the consequence with agreeing with Jesus and who he said he was? I want to tell you a little bit about my, of my story, um, of how this, sorry, my story, how this, this uh, came, came to make sense um, to me. When um, I grew up going to church and the church I grew up in, I didn't hear a lot about Jesus um, but when I was in high school, a friend invited me to go with his youth group to this summer, um, like summer missions thing, where we went to Savannah, Georgia, and we did community service, um, spent the week painting a, a woman's house in Savannah, Georgia. And so we went down there, and um, the structure of the week, we're with a bunch of other um, folks uh, with their youth groups, and we stayed in this high school in Savannah and slept on the floor of a classroom. And then during the day, we went out to people's houses and did work, and um, during our lunch break, we'd have this little Bible study, and the, uh, the person who was leading it gave us this, it's like a handkerchief, it's like a rag about the size of a handkerchief. And as we did this Bible study, we were asked um, to write down um, the things that made us feel guilty and the things that made us feel shame, and to, and to write that on the, the rag. Uh, and then we put it in our pocket and we carried it with us all week. Um, and then during the evenings that week, they had a series of talks that I later learned has, had a structure. Like the first talk was who is God? And the, the second night's talk was, um, I think the second night's talk was the, the problem, like the reality of sin. Um, the third night talk was who is Jesus? And the last night was, um, was the cross and telling us about, about the cross of Christ. I actually don't remember. I don't know what the second night's talk was because I wasn't there because I was like 14, 15. And some of the older guys in the youth group convinced our leaders to take everyone to go see American Pie in the theaters. So, um, so instead of hearing the sin talk, I went and saw American Pie in the theaters. And, um, and yet, and yet, the last night 
Um, we were told the story of Jesus' death for us. And then we were told this parable. Um, I think the guy might have made it up. Uh, this parable of a guy called the rag collector who went throughout this town and he took everyone's dirty rags and he cleaned them and he gave them clean clothes the next morning. And then we were invited to take those rags we had in our pocket that had written down our sin and our shame and our guilt and to take it to the front of the room and to lay it down on this big wooden cross and to, and to hand our... Um, to hand our sin and our shame and our guilt over to Jesus. And I remember walking down and, and laying, uh, laying this rag down at the foot of this cross and going and sitting down and saying, like, I don't know if this is true, but Jesus, I want it to be. Um, I want this to be true. And I remember experiencing this, this great weight lift off my shoulders and, and having this, this feeling forgiven, um, knowing Jesus as the Christ with the cross. Fast forward a couple of years, finished high school, went to college, went to Tulane University in New Orleans, uh, which is kind of like four years of American pie in the theaters. Um, and uh, that's not in my notes. Um, and, and the fall of my senior year, Hurricane Katrina hit, and Tulane shut down for the year, for the semester, and I went home to, um, went home to Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm from, and, um, and enrolled in UVA for the semester. But my first years of, three years of college were very up and down, um, very up and down. I, um, I remember I was in a fraternity. I woke up a lot of mornings uh, regretting what had happened the night before and like promising to do something different. Like I thought, it was up to, I thought it was up to me to try harder, to be better, to believe more. And like I couldn't figure out how to live like I believed this stuff. And then I went home to Charlottesville and I was, I was at UVA for the semester. And I ended up, I met this pastor when I got there um, who I met with weekly that semester. And as we met together, I'd ask him, he'd ask me, John, how are you? And I'd respond and say, I'm great. How are you doing? You know, remember like my entire life was underwater. Katrina just happened. And all I could say was, I'm great. I'm good. And maybe six weeks into that semester, he um, I, I, I think I just crashed. Like it just, I couldn't hold it together any longer. I couldn't keep up the facade. And I met with him and he said, John, how are you? And I said, Paul, um, I'm not doing very well. And he said, good, I want you lower. It's like, wait, you can't say that. You're a pastor. Um, but what he meant was that I was just starting to be honest about how much I actually needed Jesus and how my salvation was 100% his work and I contributed nothing. And as I walked into this, as I began to be more honest with my need and my brokenness and my sin, I was met with God's grace and his provision and his love and his mercy. And the result of this was this explosion of joy and peace and freedom. And I began to love Jesus, not because I was supposed to, but because I finally saw that he loved me first. I finally saw God as a loving father who I could trust with my life because he had given me what was most precious to him, his son and his Holy Spirit. Friends, it's not about your performance. You don't have to be anything or anyone. You don't have to be the best or the prettiest or the most athletic or confident or the, most, or the smartest or the best dressed or the most prepared. Actually, you need the exact opposite. Come feeling ugly. Come tired, come insecure, 
Come hard-hearted, come scattered, come unprepared, come hungover, come covered in your guilt and shame, come ignorant and foolish, come poor and needy, come with nothing but your sin and your need. And Jesus, who loves you more than you could ever imagine, will give you life because he gives you himself. This is who Jesus is. He is dead for you, dead and resurrected. So listen to Jesus's question. Who do you say that I am? I want to close from the, with this. This is from C.S. Lewis um, in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So friends, tonight, those are your three options. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is who he said he is, the Christ who came with a cross. And this is the invitation from Jesus, where he asks you, but you, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for your friends, for these friends, and thank you for your word to us tonight. Jesus, thank you that you show us who you are, crucified and risen for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us um, to know who you are. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. If you all want to stand up, we're going to sing one more song.